0: Lord God, at the best of times, we struggle to listen to and to obey your word. How much more right now as we're scattered, as we're apart from each other, as we're watching this on a screen. Lord, we ask that you would help us to listen to you now. Help us to set aside the distractions. Help us to set aside the worries and concerns of this week. Lord, would you speak to us, grow us, change us, for our good and for your glory, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few months ago I came across the story of a South Korean couple who accidentally destroyed a piece of art valued at half a million US dollars. The artwork was by a famous American artist, John Wan, and had been painted in front of a live audience, and so included as part of the display were the tins of paint and brushes that he had used. The young couple saw these brushes and paint and took that as an invitation to take part, to join in, to add their little creative flair to this piece of art. And with that, a few splashes of black paint destroyed half a million dollars worth of art. Now, you might wonder, why leave brushes and paint in front of an artwork if you didn't want anyone to use them? You might wonder, how good could that artwork have actually been if this couple thought that they had something to add to it? But ultimately those questions don't change the fact that these wannabe artists are guilty of destroying a masterpiece. A valuable painting is ruined and the smoking gun, or in this case the dripping paintbrush, is in their hands. Well today we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis and so far in Genesis we've seen the story of a master craftsman, an artist, The God who labored over a masterpiece. And yet today in Genesis 3, we come to the part of the story where God's creation, the highlight of God's creation even, the the final stroke of brilliance that took the creation that was good to being very good, we see the people that God created in his image rebel against their maker. We see the artwork try to become the artist. And just like our South Korean artist wannabes, the artwork is ruined. Now this will be a familiar story to many of you. And it's a story that raises a lot of questions. You might wonder, why did God even create the tree of knowledge of good and evil if he didn't want anyone to eat its fruit? you might wonder how good could the creation have actually been if humans could be so easily tempted to rebel against their maker. You might wonder where evil came from if not from God. And all of these questions while good, questions that are worth wrestling with, ultimately these questions don't change the fact that humans are guilty of destroying God's good creation. And so while we might wonder how evil got into God's good creation, where the serpent came from, or why God even created the forbidden fruit in the first place, but the thing that's most helpful for us to see is that this is our story. Adam and Eve's story is our story. Their deception is our deception. Their disobedience, our disobedience. The disorder that they experience is our disorder. And their death is our death. Understanding that their story is our story helps us to understand this world that we live in. It helps us understand why there is disease and disaster and domestic violence and death. But even better than that, Genesis chapter three helps us understand God's solution to the problems of our world and the problems of our own hearts. So let's take a look at Genesis three together. We begin in verse one with a story of deception because Genesis three begins with a serpent. Now we're not told who he is. We're not told what his motives are. All we're told is that he's crafty, he's deceptive. And with just three short sentences, the serpent causes the first humans to doubt God's word, God's wrath, and God's will. In verse 1, the serpent questions God's word. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden? Now, of course, that's not what God had said. In chapter two, verse sixteen, God told Adam and Eve that they were free to eat from any tree in the garden, except one. And the woman knows that. She responds in verse two: "We may eat from, uh, sorry, we ate, may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die." The serpent questions God's word. Did God really say? Now in verse 4, he denies God's wrath. You will not certainly die. God had made clear his anger at disobedience. God had made clear that disobeying the creator would bring certain death. But the serpent denies God's wrath. He denies God's word. He denies God's wrath. And to cap it all off in verse 5, the serpent disputes God's will. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent causes Eve to doubt God's goodness. He makes her think that God does not have her best interests at heart. And so she wonders... Why does God hold back this good thing from me? Why doesn't God want me to be happy? Why doesn't God love me? She's deceived into doubting God's word, denying God's wrath and distrusting God's will. And so she disobeys. She takes. She eats and she gives some to her husband who was also there and is equally guilty. Now this all might seem kind of trivial to you. I mean, surely it's not that big a deal, it's just fruit. Surely the God who created everything isn't going to worry about two pieces of missing fruit. But Genesis 3 isn't about stolen fruit. It's about rejecting God's grace and rebelling against God's authority. You see, God gave Adam and Eve everything. They were free to eat from any tree in the whole garden. Everything that God had made was theirs to rule over and to care for. But they took the one thing that wasn't theirs. A few years ago, I woke up looked out my window and saw a homeless guy stealing my socks off the washing line. And at first I was really annoyed by that, but then after a while I came to realise that anyone stealing my socks must be pretty desperate. You see, he was stealing, but he was stealing because he had nothing. But Adam and Eve had everything. Adam and Eve taking the fruit is like Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, coming and stealing all of my possessions. He has everything, and yet he takes the one thing that is not his. Adam and Eve had everything. God had graciously given them so much, but they decided it wasn't enough. They were already like God, but they wanted to be God. They wanted his authority. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right. And what was wrong. And so do we. Because their story is our story. The deception they faced, we face. Now, you and I probably don't encounter too many talking snakes. But just like Adam and Eve, we're tempted to doubt God's word, God's will, and God's wrath. Every day we hear the voice in the media, from friends, and even in our own heads. Did God really say? Every day we're tempted to think that God does not have our best interests at heart. We're tempted to believe that God is not for us, but against us. Why else would he demand so much of us? Why else? Would he ask us to sacrifice so much, to deny ourselves? And every day we're tempted to deny God's wrath. We've believed the lie that God doesn't really care about sin. We've believed the lie that the things we do are too small for God to notice. Have a think, do you really believe that the wages of sin is death? Do you really believe that you deserve to die for your sin? Do you think that your greed, your pride, your anger and your lust provoke God's wrath? You see, we're so good at minimizing sin, of making it out to be a small thing. We do it by comparing ourselves to other people. We say, I'm not as bad as that guy. We do it by balancing the scales. Sure, I'm a little greedy, but eh, I balance it out by how well I take care of my family. But you see, while sin might manifest itself in countless, seemingly harmless acts, Genesis 3 shows us that at its core, sin is rebellion against the God who created you. Your anger, your pride, your lust, your greed is rebellion against God's authority. Rejection of his grace. And as we see in the rest of Genesis 3, that kind of rebellion leads to disorder and ultimately to death. The consequences for Adam and Eve are immediate. First comes the shame of realising that they're naked. Next comes the fear of being found out by God. After that comes blame as Adam points one hand at his wife and the other hand at the God who put her there. Eve points her fingers too. She's pointing at the snake who deceived her. But the only finger pointing that really matters comes from the God who is the righteous judge, the one who sees all and knows all. And as God hands down his verdict, we see the beauty and order of his creation start to unravel. The artwork has been ruined. Humanity, which was created in the image and likeness of God, is now a distorted image. And there's five ways that we see that. Firstly, ruling is made harder. Humanity was created to rule over God's creation, but now the creation has mastered them. They've been deceived by a creature, one of the creatures that they were to rule over. And so in verse 15, we see that the hostility between humans and creatures will continue. The threat of snakes and spiders and sharks and crocodiles will serve as a reminder to us that ruling God's creation is now difficult. Secondly, multiplying is made harder. In Genesis 2, God blessed Adam and Eve with the instruction to be fruitful and multiply. Having babies was to be a good thing. But now that good thing is a difficult thing. Now having children is still good, but childbirth now comes with excruciating pain. Besides the physical pain of actually giving birth, there's also the emotional turmoil experienced by those who are unable to conceive. There's the emotional difficulty of raising children in this broken world. Ruling is made harder, multiplying is made harder thirdly working is made harder remember in genesis 2 we saw that humans are workers it's our task to care for god's creation but now that task is laborsome tiresome and frustrating from broken bodies through physical labor to the boring monotony of life in the office cubicle to the despair of the mother at home with the kids, to the suicide amongst farmers on the land. Working is now cursed. Still good, but difficult. Fourthly, relationships are made harder. At the end of Genesis 2, Adam sings at this new wife that God has made for him. They celebrate together their security and their safety in their intimacy. But in God's words to Eve in verse 16 of chapter three, we see how even marriage is now cursed. The roles and responsibilities of husband and wife are now distorted. And husbands and wives now strive against each other in a battle for control. Things that were, are still good are now harder. Ruling is harder, multiplying is harder, working is harder, marriage is harder, and finally we see that living itself is harder. God mercifully spares Adam and Eve instant destruction, but because of their disobedience they now will certainly die. God says to Adam as he curses him that he will return to the dust. The chapter ends with the hopeless reality of Adam and Eve banished from the presence of God, afflicted with the curse and cut off from the tree of life. The artwork tried to become the artist and the masterpiece is ruined. Death reigns in this world. We're experiencing that right that right now, aren't we? We're stuck in our homes, because death reigns in this world. Well friends, this is our story. Their story is our story. Just like Adam and Eve, we are deceived into doubting God's word, distrusting God's will, and denying God's wrath. Just like Adam and Eve, we disobey God by rejecting His grace and rebelling against His authority. Just like Adam and Eve, we suffer the consequences of living in a disordered world. And just like Adam and Eve, we all face death as a result of rebelling against our creator. But unlike Adam and Eve, death does not need to be the end of our story. Because unlike Adam and Eve's story, our story now has hope. And we see just a glimpse of that hope in God's words to the serpent in verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel." See, even as God hands down his judgment on the deceptive serpent and the rebellious woman, there is a faint glimmer of hope. A faint glimmer of hope that one day a descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. A faint hope that a human will defeat the power of evil. And so with every child that the woman brings into the world, there is hope the possibility that perhaps this child will be the serpent crusher. This child could be the one to defeat the power of Satan, to break the curse, to restore humanity to its glorious image. And so the Old Testament tells the disappointing story of the woman's descendants. The first child she bears becomes a murderer. The second child is the victim. And with every generation that follows there are occasional bright sparks amidst the majority who are crushed by evil rather than being the ones to crush evil. But then in the New Testament we meet yet another descendant of the woman. We meet a child whose ancestry in Luke chapter 3 is traced all the way back to Adam we meet a man who was tempted just like the first man was. Just as the serpent tempted them to doubt God's word and deny God's wrath and distrust God's will, in Luke 4, we see Satan employ the same strategy against Jesus. But unlike the first humans, Jesus did not fall into temptation. He did not sin. He obeyed God Perfectly, And at the cross, while Satan struck Jesus with death, it was Jesus who won the battle. Evil was crushed. The curse was broken. Death was overcome. And so today we live as descendants of Adam and Eve. Their story is our story. We are still deceived. We still disobey. We still suffer the disorder. We still face certain death. Their story is our story. But by God's grace, through his son, God has made our story his story. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Their story is our story, but if we trust in Jesus, the serpent crusher, our story of sin and death can be history. Let me pray. Our Father, we are so prone to minimize the problem of sin. We're so good at treating it like a small thing, an insignificant thing, a thing that doesn't matter. Lord, please show us the weight of our sin. Show us where we disobey your word. Show us where we distrust your will. Show us where we deny your wrath. And Lord, keep us from falling into those temptations. Lord, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your forgiveness for disobeying you, for rebelling against your authority. But Lord, we ask with the sure hope that in Jesus you offer us full and free forgiveness. We thank you that Jesus came to be the true Adam, the perfect man, the one who would crush evil, defeat the curse, overcome death, and that he would do that for us. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, so that we may have life in you. Keep us from sin, we pray. Enable us to live for you, for your glory, that we may be your image bearers who rule this world, who work, who love, who care like you do. Do that in us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.